Welcome back, everybody, to All Met Sports Talk with Coach Sherm. Happy to have you for the, the second interview this week. It's the first week that we've done two in a week. So appreciate you tuning in. Uh, remember to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search All Met Sports Talk. On Twitter, the handle is at All Met Talk. And you can email us at allmetsportstalk at gmail.com. Big thanks to my guy, Preston Suggs, again, for the music that, he's, that he provides for us each week. You can find him on Instagram at King P. Suggs. So I'm very honored to have what who many may call Mr. Basketball here, here in the in the DMV, Coach Butch McAdams. How you doing today, Coach? I am wonderful, and I am so honored to be a part of your show. Well, thank you, sir. I, I got to tell you, earlier this week, I interviewed Coach uh, Chuck Drizel over there at the Murray School, which you know well, and we're going to talk about. And he wanted me to tell you that if he does half as as well as you did, he will have a very successful career there. So, well, I, I am so proud of Coach Giselle, um, and he's already done more than half. He will surpass me, and I'm rooting for him to surpass me because that's what it's about. Life is about evolution, yeah. and um, the program is in great hands um, from top to bottom with Coach Chuck Drizel, and he's developed, well, the, the NCAA Player of the Year on the I, men's side, Luca Garza. And uh, Chuck did a wonderful job with him. And then we have E.J. Jarvis, and Coach did a wonderful job with him. And, and there are countless others. So he is one of the premier high school coaches in America, mm. uh, in, in my opinion. Absolutely. Definitely a, a national treasure and here right in our own backyard. We're going to talk a lot about DMV Hoops because I think that, you know, I, I love listening to your show. We're going to talk about your show as well, but you just get such a, a history and, and such a, you just learn so much about this area and just the wealth of knowledge. And I've had, you know, a lot of great guests on uh, from Mike Sweetney to Fred Brown to Tracy Jackson um, um, uh, Derek Lewis came on, you know, and it's like hearing these guys, <clears throat> you know, whether it be late seventies, the eighties, nineties, two thousands, that, you know, it's just a continuum of just incredible high school talent here in the DMV. Yes. Uh, so, uh, and, and you learn all about that listening to your show. I, I, before we, uh, kind of start talking about your career, I wanted to tell you, I heard your interview with JB with Mr. James Brown. Uh, and I thought that was just incredible. It was so much fun to listen to the two of you kind of go back and forth and, and talk about the, you know, the, the history here in, in the DMV. Thank you. Thank you so much. It, it's, you know, it's, it's so much of a, an honor for me to sit down and visit with so many accomplished people, but it's even easier when you're, visiting with someone who you know or you're familiar with. Yeah. And, and James Brown has been just a tremendous example for all of us in humility mm. and also in preparation and having a tremendous work ethic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. And you know him personally, so you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, so let's talk about your career. So you you kind of, you know, D.C. born and bred, whether it be from high school to college sure. and then all the way coaching for, for a few decades here. So you started at Mackin High School, which is a, just an incredible 
you know, school. Uh, so talk about your high school days. What was basketball like in the DMV when you were playing uh, at Mac in one of the story programs? Basketball, basketball was king. And, and D.C. was one of the hotbeds in the country for basketball. And I know New York gets a lot of publicity, and they should. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia gets a lot of pub. They should. Chicago, L.A. But none greater in producing just great athletes and especially basketball players than the District of Columbia. Um, just for example, we've had four number one, number one selections. Wow. Four. And we've had, I think, eight overall number two selections in the NBA. Wow. And that's quite a accomplishment for a region that has probably about five million. Mm-hmm. Right. That's an incredible. I didn't know that stat. That's incredible. Yeah. I- yeah. The uh, four number one overalls, Elgin Baylor mm-hmm. was the first one. Fred Hetzel was the second. Austin Carr was the third. And of course, recently, Markel Fultz mm-hmm. was the fourth. Right. And and then you've had folks like uh, Dave Bing, um, Kevin Durant, um, I think Mike Beasley, mm-hmm. uh, Victor Oladipo, mm-hmm. and more were number two overall picks. Wow. Incredible. And then, you, you know, you can just rattle off probably about another 50 names who have been top 10, you know. Well, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah ab- ab- absolutely. And then from a historic standpoint, you look at Spingarn mm-hmm. producing not one, but two Hall of Famers and two members of the uh, 50th anniversary all-time NBA team, and Dave Bing and Elgin Bell. Mm-hmm. Then you go to the 1976 Olympic basketball team, you had three members on that team were natives from the District of Columbia. Adrian Dantley, Kenny Carr, both from DeMatha, mm-hmm. and Coach John Thompson was the assistant. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then, and, and, and then just to throw in, and speaking of the 76 Olympic team, that was when Sugar Ray Leonard got a gold medal boxing, mm-hmm. and, and he's from the area. Yeah. So we have a proud history and legacy of sports, but I I will always be an advocate and a drum major for the person who paved the way for the aforementioned and many more. And that is Dr. Edwin Bancroft Henderson. Mm. Edwin Henderson is the, the father of black basketball in the District of Columbia. He was the first African-American physical educator in the United States. And when Dr. Naismith in the early 1900s invented the game of basketball, it was Edwin Bancroft Henderson who went and studied the game that summer and brought it back to DC. And he initially tried to occupy the YMCA and because of racism, he was denied. 
So then he went to the historic 12th Street Y here in the district, and that's where it all began, basketball in the Black community in Washington, D.C. Do you know what year that was, Coach? That was, it, it was in the early 1900s. Wow. Wow. Incredible. So you played your college ball at UDC? You know, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't play college basketball. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You went to college at UDC. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, my story is a very unique one. And I tell, I grew up loving sports. Mm-hmm. I had a father and an older brother who were sports fans. And as a very young child, five, six years of age, I would be um, in the living room with them while they're watching a football game, a World Series game, et cetera. And I'm listening. And when I got of age around seven and eight, and I really understood what I was watching, man, I was just amazed at sports. I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I followed it. I would listen to games on the radio at night when my friends would go to the local uh, newsstand to buy comic books. I never bought a comic book. I bought Dell Sports. <laughs> I bought Street and Smith. I bought the Sporting News. Anything mm-hmm. that I could read about in terms of baseball, football, basketball, or wrestling, that I was buying that. And so I knew that I wanted to have a career in sport. And growing up, I was a pretty good basketball player with good skills, but I had one problem. I was overweight. I was chubby. I was a fat boy. <laughs> and, and while if, if I could get my feet planted from the corner, oh, it was money in the bank. Okay, mm. but I couldn't move. Mm. One summer, I was uh, 16 years old, and it was the beginning of the summer, and I was playing one of my best friends. And we played three games one-on-one. He beat me all three, and I was so upset. And they were close games, and I said, man, you beat me like this. He said, you know, you're a pretty good player, but you got to lose some of this weight. And I said, okay, will you help me? He said, yeah. True story. In May of 1967, I weighed 256 pounds. Wow. In late August, after Labor Day, at the beginning of school, I weighed 195 pounds. Oh, my goodness. 195. True story. So you're talking, and a little more than three months, I lost close to 70 pounds. Mm. And when I went back to school, people didn't know me. They didn't <laughs> know who I was. And was on the basketball court, or on the court. The junior varsity coach saw me and, and told me to come over. And he said, I really like how you play. I like how you can shoot that ball. Where'd you go to school last year? And I said, I was here last year. He said, no, you weren't. You know, I didn't ever see you play. 
And then so I explained I lost weight. So long story short, um, I played a year on the JV, but I had lost the weight so rapidly that it came back on me and I became ill. Mm. Okay. And so the following year, I was unable to play varsity. And that was kind of rough for me mentally because I knew skill-wise I was as good, if not better, than some of the people. But I would go to all the practices. I would go to all the games. I would sit behind the bench and I would watch. So then I graduate. I go to Federal City College, which later became the University of District of Columbia. And in 1969-70, freshmen weren't eligible to play varsity. They just had to play freshman ball. So I went out for the team, and I made it. But I woke up one morning, and I said, you know what? I made the team, but my future as a player is is limited at best. Mm -hmm. And it so happened at that time, my my, uh, parish priest, Father Raymond Kemp at St. Augustine's, who had a history of great basketball players, great teams. And he wanted to get that glory back for basketball. And he approached me about coaching. And I initially said, I don't want to coach. And he approached me a second time. I turned him down. He sent one of my best buddies to ask me. And finally, I said, okay, I will coach just to get you off my back mm-hmm. one year and I'm not going to do it again. Well, I coached that one year. This was um, junior ball, which was ages 13 to 15, seventh and eighth graders. And we took a team that had only won a handful of games the prior year and we made it to the uh, playoffs. Mm. Wow. And I had the best time of my life. And caught that bug. And caught the bug. So from 1969 until 2007, except for one year, when I took off to take care of my mother, who was ill, from 69 to 2002, every season but one, I coached. Mm. To 2002 or 2007? No, 2007 was my last year. Okay. So that's incredible. So 31 years you spent at Murray, at the Murray School. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, three decades, more than three decades. And and you taught physical education there as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I always say that when I came, I was a big brother status. Mm Mm-hmm. Then I became father status. Mm-hmm. And later on, I became grandfather status. <laughs> and um, I coached in four decades, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Wow. I, I, I don't even know where to begin to ask you what that must have been like to be at one place that long. Uh, well, obviously, it was that. special. Um, I have always been a creature of habit. Um, some individuals will change for the sake of change. Mm-hmm. But if something is working mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable with it, 
I stay with it. One of the things that helped me graduate from college was I learned that in most cases, it's about the professor. And if you get a professor that you're comfortable with and you understand his or her style, you're in good shape. So for most of my courses, I duplicated the professor. For example, for my my literature requirement, I had the same professor. For my my biology and science requirements, pretty much the same professor and on and on and on. Um, I'll tell you a quick funny story. Uh, I was coaching once and I had a young assistant. And after the first quarter, we were leading by something like 12 points. And I think the score was maybe 16 to four, something like that. And he looked at me and said, coach, what do you think about switching defenses to give him a different look? And I said, look at the score. If we something like four or six points on us, why do we have to change anything? And my philosophy in life has always been, if something works, I stay with it. Mm-hmm. Same food, same friends, same <laughs> barber, same accountant, same car, everything. I mm-hmm. stay with it. Yay. So great it advice. Was, yes, it was easy for me to stay 31 years at Murray because Murray became my second home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And faculty there became my second family. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that, they would have to be. Yes. What were some of the greatest teams you coached while you were there? Well, I mean, it's when I say that, you know, I, um, it doesn't always have to be wins. So, uh, because some of my greatest times have been on teams that were not as successful because <laughs> you just, you know, you enjoy the kids or the, the parents, whatever it may be. But what were some of the most successful teams you had there? Well, I certainly understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But in full disclosure, I don't have fun unless I'm winning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've got a saying that finishing number two only counts in the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to steal that one. Yeah, but um, – I was very blessed to have some really good teams and some exceptionally good players. Mm -hmm. Um, When I initially got the job at Murray in 1978, one of the greatest individuals that I ever met besides my father and my brother was a guy named Peter Sturdivant. And Mr. Sturdivant was such a unique individual where he had the rare ability to feel comfortable in any environment, whether it was on Wisconsin Avenue or Georgia Avenue, he could blend in. Mm -hmm. And so we had a wonderful relationship. And when I, I remember interviewing for the job, And the interview lasted about two hours, a little more. Mm. But we only spent about 20 minutes talking about the job. Most of it was talking about Washington, D.C. 
and some of the compatible experiences and individuals. And I knew then that that's the person I wanted to work under. Mm-hmm. And Ray was the school that I wanted to work with. And the two key questions I asked him was, number one, if I were able to identify good student athletes, but didn't have the financial resources, could he provide the financial assistance? He said, yes. My second question was, how good of a basketball program do you want? Mm -hmm. And he was very honest and very candid. He said, look, we are an academic institution. We can't play 30 to 40 games a year. So we don't have to be DeMathis, St. John's, Carroll, et cetera. But if we get in the top 10 or the top 20 every so often, I can live with that. (laughs) And I said, okay. And so I always say that coaching staffs don't win championships. Administrations win championships. Mm -hmm. And so he worked with me and my assistant coach, Charles Lewis. And in most cases, when we identified at the time, young men who were good students and they were good athletes, he was able to get them in and assist them financially. And so um, my first year, we had a pretty good team. And then in 79, we fell off a bit because I, I, I had um, four freshmen on the team and they were going to be talented, knew that they were going to be good, but they were freshmen mm-hmm. and they were learning me. I was learning them and um, they were learning high, the high school game. So we were under 500 that year. And then in 1980, we picked up. But 81, when those freshmen became juniors, that's when we started. And that's when we, in 1981, we had our biggest win to date. We defeated Easton High School. Mm. And Easton was a powerhouse. Yeah. And their coach, Herman Cannon, was a tremendous friend and tremendous mentor. And he would always give me a game. And we defeated Easton. But here's the story. Donald Huff, who was the guru when it came to covering high school sports in D.C., he was the high school sports editor for the Washington Post. And when my manager called the score in that Murray had defeated Easton, he thought it was a prank. (laughs) He did not initially record it. He called Easton's head coach and say, hey, Coach Cannon, I just got a call saying that y'all lost to Murray. That's not right, is it? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, they got it. And so that was a very uh, interesting experience. And then from there, we had a big win over a good council. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when it started. And then in eighty. Two, I had four starters returning. Yeah. And so that's when I knew, man, we're going to be there. 
Yeah, yeah. And so we had a good schedule. We scheduled Gonzaga, and we beat them. Wow. Okay. Then, then we had to go over to Eastern that next year, and then they got us. Yeah. Long story short, we were in the top 20. Uh, we, we finished number 18 that year. We won 22 games. We lost nine. And all the games we lost were the top flight teams, top rated teams. In 1984, we had an off year in terms of team production mm-hmm. because we were a little young then. Mm-hmm. But I had one of the best players in the DMV that year. And his name was Terry Coffey. Terry Coffey, for two years in a row, was the second leading scorer in the area. Terry was the co-captain of the McDonald's team. Mm. He was the starting guard for the McDonald's team. And Terry scored 11 points and 12 minutes in the, in the 1984 Capital class. Wow. Where did he go to school? He went to UConn. Okay. I think I remember him. Yeah. Terry Coffey was one of the best guards at that time. He was, he was six. He was a miniature version of Adrian Dampy. He was Mm -hmm. literally unstoppable offensively. And, and I can say this Sherman, that when I was at Murray, when we were independent, later on, we went into a league. Mm-hmm. We were independent. We traditionally had one of the toughest schedules in the area. Yeah. We would play the top independents, which were St. Anthony's and Flint Hill. Mm. And then we would play DeMatha every year, Gonzaga, Good Counsel, Eastern, Cardozo, Phelps. We didn't duck anyone. Yeah. And the reason why I wanted to play a competitive schedule was because, A, when I would have a good team, I wanted us to be a legitimate top 20 selection versus people saying, well, you got a good record, but you haven't played anybody. Right. And when I would have a legitimate candidate for all met, I wanted him to get the proper recognition and I could say, well, yeah, he scored 20 on a private school, but he also scored 20 on St. Anthony's or Flint Hill. Mm-hmm. And so that those were the reasons why we played such a competitive schedule. Sure. But from 19, I would say from 1978, my first year, to my last year, 2007, we had close to... I would say 15 to 20 top 20 appearances. Not bad for a small independent academic school. Right. Not bad at all. And and we did it the right way. And we never sacrificed academics for basketball. Mm -hmm. Because I could give you a litany list of players who wanted to come to the school, but I couldn't get in for it. Couldn't yeah. get it for one reason or another. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I coach at, at uh, Chapelgate now, which is a very competitive. Well, 
academically competitive school as well as basketball. And it's same, it's the same way, you know, this first question I ask, you know, if the parent, parents, Oh, he's a good student, you know, he gets uh, B's and C's and I'm like, mm, those B's and C's are going to be C's and D's at our place. So, you know, it's yeah, so, yeah. So, so that was it, but I was fortunate being uh, from the area and uh, the AAU certainly was not prevalent then, but, I had relationships with some of the junior high school coaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And two especially, the two top academic junior high schools at the time were Alice Deal mm. and Jefferson in Southwest. Okay. And I was blessed to have great relationships with those two coaches, um, Coach Spearman at Deal and Coach Spinner at Jefferson. Yeah. And um, I developed a relationship with the counselors there at those schools as well. So when they had a student athlete that they felt could qualify for our school, they would give me a call. Yeah. And because they knew that every student athlete that they sent my way, we took care of. Right. That's great. Yeah, and they're yeah. and they're getting a good education too, and I think that's see that's one one thing that I have you know going for me when I'm out here recruiting as well that you could also do, uh, you know they know okay if they come to Murray or if they come to Chapelgate they're going to be getting a top tier education, and they're going to be gonna, ready they're going to be ready for college, you know it's a college prep you know they're going to be ready they're going to be playing very competitive basketball while getting a, a top notch education as well. So I would always tell some of the, the students and the parents, I would always say, look, we're not the math. Mm-hmm. We're not St. John's. We're not Gonzaga. But I will say this. If you combine basketball with academic opportunities, that combination, no school can beat us. Right. No right. school, if if you combine the two, and one hundred percent, and I'm sure you're aware of that because of your current situation, but one hundred percent of all of our seniors attended college. Yep. Yeah, we have uh, six seniors this year, and all six are going to college. Four are going to play basketball. The other two, you know, high academics as well, but they're all, all six going to college. Yep. But, but I look at some of the memorable teams, 1982, that was my first top 20 team. Mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned, uh, Kenny go, go, Gorham was my first top student athlete to recruit. He along with Daryl Bree. And I love those guys because without them, who knows where I would have been. Mm-hmm. They were the foundation. And then from those guys, then it was the aforementioned Terry Coffey, who was my first, first team all men. And, and then Tom Taney, uh, James Barnes, Sylvester Simpkins, uh, Greg Taylor, Anthony Carr. I mean, it, it, it goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So many great young men that I was blessed to work with. Yeah. And, and they were, they were the building blocks of the program. Uh, Todd Beaton, 
um, and Ollie Dunn, Mike Dade, uh, Travis Allen. Um, and I'm so proud of Travis because Travis came to play for us. And now Travis is on the uh, board mm. of, of Murray. Wow. And one day, this quick story, uh, he was coming in for a meeting, and this was before I retired, and I saw him, and I said, Travis, you're looking awful sharp. He had a nice suit and tie on. And he said, you know, Coach, the first time I ever put a tie on was when I played for you, and you had a, a requirement that for all road games, we had to wear a tie. And that made me feel real good. Yeah, yeah. But But we've had some great – Teams, as I said, 82 was a great team, 83. I would say the best Murray team, in my opinion, that I coached was 86. Uh, 86. Mm-hmm. And that 86 team, uh, Charles Lewis, who was initially my uh, assistant, and then I left for two years, went to Mac, and he came back. Mm-hmm. And he was the head coach. But that 86 team was the only Murray team that I could think of that started five Division I basketball players. Now, that was quite an accomplishment yeah. to have five D1 players in basketball on a school that, that had in the upper school from 9 through 12 probably less than 100 boys. <laughs> and, and we had... Uh, we had um, Sylvester Simpkins at the point, Dwayne Simpkins' older brother. Okay, I was going to say, I was going to ask if he was related to him. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yes, Dwayne's older brother. Okay. Tremendous player like Dwayne. Tremendous player. Um, I think Dwayne was a little better athletically, mm-hmm. but he couldn't shoot like Sly. Oh, boy, Sly could shoot that basketball and was a tremendous player. He went to Gannon. Greg Taylor was out two guards. Greg went to William and Mary. Mm. And then we had Matt Lappin. Now, Matt Lappin was the leading three-point shooter at Princeton. Mm. Wow. In the late 80s. And Matt could flat. He was a typical Princeton player, smart, and could shoot that basketball. And Matt went to Princeton. James Barnes, we call the bear, was a starting uh, big man for Penn State. Mm. They defeated UCLA in the first round of the tournament. Uh, James was the player of, of the game. Wow. And then we had Anthony Carr, who went to uh, Virginia Tech and then later Mount St. Mary. So we were six, we were six eight, six seven, six eight, five eleven, and six three. Good gracious. That was pretty good team. So yeah. that was that was nineteen eighty six. That was a very good team. Yeah. And then we had had a good team in eighty eight. We had a good team in eighty nine. Ninety we had a very good team. Ninety two we had a very good team. And probably one of my most accomplished teams, not the talented, most talented. But in 1994, we were number 17 in the city. We finished with a 
with the longest winning streak, we won 15 straight games. Mm. And on that team, we weren't that big. But but what I had was I had Mike Dade, who was 6'4", who was just a great all-around player. And at 6'4", Michael Dade could guard a player from 6'4", up to 6'9". Oh, yeah. I love players like that. I mean, he he was uh, like a Bill Russell type. And then I had a guy named Duke Fox who was just 6'3", very knowledgeable, very court-savvy type player. He took 10 charges, 10, <laughs> in one ball game. Oh, my gosh. And it should have been 11. And on the 11th one, the referee didn't call it. And I looked at him and said, ref, now you know that was a charge, but I, I guess you're tired of calling. And, and, and then I had Todd Beaton, who was a very good player, very good point guard. And Todd was so good his senior year. That was his junior year. But his senior year, he missed half the season, half the season, but yet he made fourth team on that. Wow. That's how good he was. Yeah, yeah. And I had a young man who was the glue. And his name was Ollie Dunn. And here's an interesting story. Ollie was a tremendous athlete, really good baseball player, could play everything. He was a kind of small kid about maybe about 5'10", but a really good athlete. And his father was very supportive of the sports um, and very influential in the school. So, and I had coached Ollie in the seventh and eighth grade. And he played JV as a ninth grader. So as a 10th grader, I put him on the varsity. And his father was irate. He, <laughs> he came to me and Coach McAdams, why are you putting my son on the first? He's the 10th grader. You know he's not going to get any playing time. And I would rather see him on the JV playing, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to probably recruit better athletes, and he'll never get a chance to play. So I listened to him respectfully. And when he was finished, and I said, Mr. Dunn, let's, let's, let's have a gentleman's agreement. When your son is in the 12th grade, and if what you say is true, I will come to you and look you in the eye and apologize. But if what you say doesn't occur, then I want the same for you. Mm-hmm. Well, as a 10th grader, and I had a philosophy that I would rather have a potentially productive future player play on the varsity as a 10th grader than play on the junior varsity and get more playing time. Mm-hmm. Because I felt that the practice against older guys and the whole environment of varsity was more valuable than JV. Mm-hmm. We're playing the math. is number one in the country that year, but we have a good team. And we go into the fourth quarter leading by four points. Mm. 
And I had a, a guard named Cornell Parker who was just a tremendous athlete. And Cornell was wearing him out. But Cornell got in foul trouble. And I couldn't take him out. Mm-hmm. And so, as fate would have it, he got that fifth foul. And I looked at Ollie and I said, Ollie, why don't you go in the game? And he was shaking. He was nervous. <laughs> You know, you're talking about the number one team in the country. I get it. I get it. Sam's pack. And I'm putting a 15-year-old uh, sophomore in the game. Put him in the game. He gets the ball. He goes into a triple threat. Before he the ball could hit the ground on a dribble, Dwayne Sipkin steals the ball, <laughs> throws it down court to Vaughn, and Vaughn dunks it, and of course, you know, the math wins the game. But I say all of that and fast forward, when Ollie Dunn becomes a senior, it was like having a coach on the floor. Yeah. I mean, he never turned it, and I would say in 20 games, he never turned it over. Mm-hmm. Never took a bad shot. He made the right decision, and after we won the championship in the tournament, his father was the first one that came up to me because I'd forgotten all about him. Yeah, yeah. I was the coach. Remember our conversation three years ago? I want to tell you, job well done with my son. Yeah. And, and when I think of that team, we were only, let's see, we were 5'10", 5'10", six foot, Six four and six three, and I had a six four off the bench and a six two off the bench. But man, we never turned it over. We ran all types. I could have literally coached that team from my bed. Yeah, <laughs> they knew what to do. I had five coaches on the floor at all times. So that ninety four team, I, I won't forget. And then my ninety nine team, and. My 97 team, when those guys were sophomores, we were five and 20. Five and 20. And people were, oh, coach, what are you going to do? And I said, just relax. We're okay. What do you mean you're okay? I said, we're okay. Next year, we were 17 and 10. Senior year, we flipped it, 20 mm. and 5. And, wow. in the, and in the top 20. Mm. Why did I know we were okay? Because I'd seen it. Mm-hmm. When you're in a school like a Murray or Chapel Gate, there's no such thing as reloading. Mm-hmm. You have to rebuild. And it takes time. But I knew that those sophomores that were playing hard when they got to be a senior and I added one or two more pieces, we'd be okay. Yep. And my really last All-American player was a guy named Tony Dobbins. Tony Dobbins was a tremendous player. He was the best defensive player on the ball I ever coached. Mm. He got a and I always tease him now. One game he registered a quadruple double. 
Wow. And I said, well, Tony, I know how you got the points. I know how you got the rebounds. I know how you got the steals. But how in the heck did you get the assists? (laughs) (laughs) Because you didn't have, he didn't have the green light, Sherman. He had the neon light. And never came out of the game. Yeah. I was, I, you know, some coaches have different philosophies where they will rest their players for a minute or, or they'll take them out like a minute before the end of the quarter and then they'll use that minute and the, the extra minute or two during the, the break during the quarter for rest. My philosophy was that you had to be prepared to play the whole game. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I never took him out of the game. Yeah. Never. One of my assistants would say, hey, coach, um, I think Tony needs a blow. And I said, okay, I'll get him out in a minute. <laughs> that minute never came. <laughs> yeah. And people would ask me, said, well, tell me a little bit about your roster. I said, okay, dress 12, play eight, trust three. Oh, I like that. And my mm-hmm. athletic director, Liz Hall, who I just had a wonderful, great relationship with. She was so supportive. She would always tease me when we would order uniforms. I would always say that number 55, that's the biggest jersey, right? I got to have somebody to fill that 55. <laughs> okay. And then she said, okay, well, I'll order, I'll order eight uniforms. And six trench coats. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah. good. But but no, it, it was such a great career. Yeah. Um, I, I just look back with so many fond memories and just a great uh, when I I'm, I'm in communication with a lot of my players through social media. Yeah. That's the um, best, isn't it? When you're able it, to just keep that. Oh gosh, yes, and and we had uh, about six months ago, uh, we had a Zoom, and it was about a half dozen or so of them on, and we just shared so many fond memories, and I was able to catch up with Terry Coffey, who I mentioned, hadn't talked to him in twenty some years, was able able to catch up with him. Wow, and um, it, it was just a great time, but but also let me say for two years. I coached girls basketball. Mm. And once again, I was reluctant to do it, didn't want to do it, was talked into it. And it was the two of the best years I've ever had coaching. And you had made a statement about sometimes winning is not necessarily all about, uh, oh, fun is not all about winning. Well, I had a lot of fun, and we won. Yeah. And it, it was great coaching girls basketball. Yeah. But but having said that, and people will ask me all the time, well, Coach, do you miss coaching? I've never missed coaching one single day. Never missed it. When your time was up, it was up. But when my time was up, it was up. And then my my next Endeavor was radio. I was just about to ask you about that. And, and, and that was why I have never missed it because the same passion mm-hmm. 
that I had in coaching, I have in radio. I can remember when I started coaching in high school, I was so fired up. My room was next to my brother's room. And one time he said, man, I heard you talking in your sleep. And I said, what did I say? He said, you were yelling defense, defense. <laughs> That's funny. So what what is the preparation like for radio or is it different? Uh, pre- you know, your preparation for radio and coaching. That's a great question. And I often tie the two together. Mm-hmm. And for example, recruiting. And we talked about where I had to go out and identify student athletes. Well, the recruiting part of radio is identifying good guests. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that's the recruiting part. And then the game plan part is programming your show. Mm -hmm. And then the game is the show. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, a great, great analogy. They, they yes. definitely tie together. You're right. Yes, ab- absolutely. And, and so that's how I equate the two. Mm-hmm. And I just have so much passion for radio. I love it. Yeah, you're, I, it, 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 you're such a natural. Too. It's so fun to listen to you. Well, thank you so much. That, that means so much to me. But I just feel that I'm so blessed because I have the opportunity to do something that thousands of people would love to do. Mm -hmm. And I get a lot of um, calls and approaches about how to get in the radio. But the first two questions that I would ask is why and how passionate are you? Mm-hmm. Because you've got, in order to be successful in anything, you've got to really want it. Mm-hmm. You have to be passionate about it. When I started in radio, I had no training whatsoever <laughs> in communication. Yeah, I knew sports and I love people, but right. I had no training. But I remember Miss Kathy Hughes doesn't get any bigger than Kathy Hughes. No. Mm-mm. But I remember Miss Hughes telling me that I can teach you radio, but I can't give you passion. Mm. And then I knew I was going to be okay because, and when I started, I was terrible. But I would get a tape of my show. I would mm-hmm. critique it. Mm-hmm. I would call individuals who had been on the radio, people like Harold Bell, people like Bernie McCain, people like Eric St. James, Joe Madison. Mm, I love Joe Madison. Larry Hicks. Well, all of these people were radio mentors. Mm. And I I would pick their brain. Yeah. And I would listen to them. Moon Man. I would listen to people like that. And you, and you listen. I remember you and JB were talking about um, Petey Green too when you were. Oh man, Petey Green. Petey Green was the person 
who really got me and so many others interested. And that's what I wanted to ask you. Is that where your interest came from? Petey Green was the first because yeah. we were listening to Petey Green as teenagers, right? as 18, 19 years of age. And Petey Green came on the old WOL on Sunday evenings mm-hmm. from six to seven. And we had never heard anything like that. Mm. He, he, he took his street language and vernacular and brought it to the airways. Yeah. And when I listened to Petey Green, and then, as I said, another mentor was Harold Bell, mm-hmm. and then Kathy Hughes, Bernie McCain. I said, I want to do that. Yeah. I want to be on the radio. And when I got that opportunity in 1992, I said, thank you, God. I am not going to let this go. Yeah. And since 1992, I've been a part of Radio One. Yeah. Ever since. And in various capacities. Sure. And where can they find your show? Where can the listeners listen into your show? Okay. My radio show is every Sunday. 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WOL with 1450 a.m. 95.9 FM. And all over the world, you can get us on the net at WOLDCnews.com. That's WOLDCnews.com. And then I do a podcast Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And that's on the AfricanAmericanAthlete.com. They can get that. And then I started doing a show in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, every Saturday from from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. on WCBT Radio. And you can get that on uh, WCBT radio.com okay and we're i'm going to put all that in the show notes as well Mm -hmm. to promote you thank you so much coach this has been just a great honor to be able to sit with you for an hour and and hear these great stories and and learn from one of the greatest coaches and and radio personalities you know the dc has ever uh has ever birthed so this has been a great honor for me Uh, Let, let me just just leave this and and one of the main ingredients to handling success in any walk of life is humility. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and I would certainly encourage everyone, regardless of accomplishments, to remain humble. Absolutely. To remain humble and to remain hungry. Oh, coach, you, I was about to add that. I tell all my kids, I, I say, the ones who you don't, the ones who make it before they head off to college, I say, remember your two H's, remain humble, remain hungry. I tell them all the time because the minute you lose it, you're not hungry. There's somebody who will be hungry coming, coming up right behind you. So, and the, the great John Wooden once said, it's what you learned after you know it all. <laughs> That's a great line. Well, coach, I have three questions I want to ask you before we get out of here. Absolutely. Three quick hitters. So the first one is, I'm going to ask you for your three favorite basketball memories from coaching. 
my my three favorite basketball memories. Number one, as I stated, when we defeated Eastern mm-hmm. and nobody believed it. <laughs> okay, that was the first one. <clears throat> I would say number two would be appearing in the top 20. Mm. And I could barely sleep. And at the time, the Washington Post arrived in the morning, like about 6.30, 7 o'clock. And I could hardly wait. Picked up the paper, went to the sports page, looked at the top 20. And I just stared at Murray. Uh, for maybe 20 minutes, I just stared. So, yeah, yeah for, for us making it the uh, top 20. And then finally, in retirement, to have so much love. And the school gave me a tremendous retirement party in our gymnasium. And hundreds of uh, former players, et cetera, came. And uh, Joe Madison. I heard about this party. Joe Madison, uh, Harold Bell, and former Governor Robert Early were the speakers. Yeah. And so those would be three memories that I will, will always cherish. Always. That's beautiful. I, I heard about this part. I heard, was Bob Wade there? Bob Wade was Coach, there. Absolutely. Uh, and I forgot who the police commissioner was at the time I heard he was Leonard there. Ham. Leonard Ham was there. Yeah. <laughs> so, amongst Ham others. Was- I mean, I saw the list of names. Those are two that just popped. And I said, wow, this, this was quite the party here. Yeah, Dewey Hughes showed up. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it was such an honor. And Yeah. Uh, well, I'll let yeah. you know how much you were loved and appreciated for, you know, four decades, four different well, decades I, you, you I, gave I, to I the school. Yeah, I, I certainly appreciate that. And also, I would be remiss that um, after retirement, uh, every year the school would have a McAdams Classic. Oh, okay. And they would have, um, uh, initially it was played on Martin Luther King's birthday and it would be uh, a couple of DC schools and a couple of Baltimore schools. Then it was, uh, you know, various schools. Uh, and the standard joke is it's the McAdams classic, not the memorial. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There you go. That's great. Yeah. All right. Two more questions. So, uh, top five, who were who was on your DMV Mount Rushmore? Well, uh, as as I said, I can give you my top five, but I'm compiling my list that I'm going to publish on my uh, social media page of my top ten. Okay, let's do top ten. Okay, here it is. Number one, and this is not alphabetical. Alphabetically, this is how I rank them. Number one, of course, Elgin Bell. Yes, absolutely. I agree. No, number two, Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. Yep. Number three, Adrian Dantley. Mm. Number four, Dave Bing. Number five, Grant Hill. Oh, yeah. Good one. Number six, Austin Carr. Mm-hmm. Number seven, Lynn Bias. Oh, yeah, yeah. Number eight, Earl Lloyd. 
Number nine, Victor Oladipo. Mm. And number 10, I'm going to say Will Jones. Okay. Now, you have it. my qualifiers real quick are accomplishments at all three levels, not just high school, not just college, not just the NBA, but an accumulation of accomplishments in all three levels. Mm-hmm. That's how I rank them. Because okay. you may say, well, why is Lynn Bias uh, at seven? Well, because we don't know how great of a player Lynn Bias would have been in the NBA. Yeah. We don't know that. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yeah. That's fair. I like it. And then last question, Coach, and I'll let you get out of here. Five dinner guests, who are you bringing to your dinner? Boy. Oh, my goodness. And this is past and present, correct? Yeah, dead or alive, people you know or don't. Okay, I would, one of the individuals I would like to bring in, um, Dean Smith. Mm. Dean Smith. Had a chance to meet him several times. Just a wonderful individual. So Dean Smith would be one. I would look at um, Malcolm X, Mm. number two. Mm -hmm. I would look at Mr. Peter Sturdivant, who I mentioned was my my, uh, first person, my first head of school. So Mm -hmm. Peter Sturdivant would, would, would be on that list. Now, um, I would say... Red our back. Okay. Yep. And then my last one would be Vince Lombardi. Oh, yeah. That's a great dinner. Right. Now. I'd like to just be a fly on the wall at that dinner. So. Right. Now, <laughs> now, um, now, of course, you know, if I had to add two more, then I would say Pam Greer. <laughs> and Beyonce. <laughs> but but on those lines, on those lines, someone asked me the question years ago when Shaq was dominant. Coach, if you had to pick between coaching Shaquille O'Neal for two years and going out with Beyonce for one year, which one would you choose? And I didn't hesitate. I said, give me Shaq. Because, hey, there's a pretty woman standing on every corner, but it's hard to find a good big man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, so, you crazy. I said, no, I'm not. I'm serious. Yeah. I can't leave it any better than that, Coach. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate this and and best of luck, continued luck in your careers. It's great to see you have this second career and uh, just a lot of fun. Learned a lot from you and I appreciate that. Well, anything that I can do to assist or help, don't hesitate. Just pick up the phone and give me a call. All right. Thank you, coach, so much. And everybody tune back in next week. Have two more guests lined up that I think that you'll really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and, and rate on iTunes, please. And of course, as always, share with your friends. Have a great one.